Hi, and welcome to Hella Healthy, the world's sickest podcast. I'm Dr. Serenity Delaporta, your guide on this journey through health. Before I jump into today's topic, I want to give a trigger warning for anyone who has been touched by pregnancy loss, depression, or suicide. I use all of these as examples in today's episode, so please feel free to skip this episode if those are not topics you wish to hear about. Today's episode is about how people make health decisions and weigh risks, particularly when it comes to seeing a doctor and treating a health condition. If you are listening to this podcast, you care about health and want to be diligent about protecting it. This means identifying any problems or risk factors early on so they can potentially be addressed to avoid poor health outcomes in the future which sounds much simpler than it actually is. How do doctors identify problems early on, perhaps even before they are actual problems? And how do we decide when to intervene? Let's talk about how we know when a health concern becomes a problem we want to address. To get you thinking, I would like to walk you through a brief thought experiment. Take a minute to imagine you are driving down the road. Perhaps you really are driving down the road right now, so you don't have to imagine. Now, imagine that your vehicle's check engine light comes on. This is a cue that you must get it looked at by a mechanic. What is less clear is how urgent the issue is. Should you get your car in right away, or can you afford to drive your vehicle around for a few more days? How do you decide this? What information do you have to go on besides the light itself? A check engine light used to be a simple thing to interpret in older vehicles. A check engine light meant something was really wrong and that you should stop driving the car and have it seen by a mechanic as soon as possible. But as cars became more complex, they started to incorporate computers that can detect even the slightest anomaly. This means a lot more check engine lights are coming on, some of which are false alarms or are detecting real but non-threatening abnormalities. In other words, sometimes the check engine light comes on because the computer is so sensitive, but the abnormality it is detecting would not have actually caused the car any real problems. The good news about computers that can sense even the slightest abnormality is that this means you can catch problems very early on, like low tire pressure, before a worse outcome like blowing a tire on the freeway. But if the check engine light is a false alarm or is signaling a non-threatening abnormality, then addressing such concerns means more hassle and can be expensive, all for no real benefit. Knowing when something is wrong with our bodies and when we should go see a doctor is a lot like this scenario, except a whole lot more complicated. Our bodies didn't come with check engine lights, unfortunately. The signs we receive indicating changes in our health vary from person to person. Some people are like the older cars, going about their lives until something really wrong occurs and they realize they are ill because of some very obvious sign. Other people are more like new vehicles, worrying about every abnormality, regardless of how threatening it is. It is important to note 
that people have differing health goals. Some people want to identify any potential problem and treat it if that means avoiding even the smallest of risks. Other people are more prudent when it comes to treatments and wish to only treat issues that pose moderate to severe risks to their health. The first step to being an empowered decision maker when it comes to your health is knowing your health goals and values. Once you have a clear picture of that, you can get the best information to make choices that are the most fitting for your particular goals and values. On a future episode, I will go into how you can think through those goals and values a bit more. When I say that we all have different goals and values when it comes to health, one thing I mean is that we vary in how much risk we are willing to take with our health. This is a kind of risk tolerance. I call it health risk tolerance. Risk tolerance may be a term you are already familiar with from the financial world, where it is generally used to describe how much risk a person is willing to take with losing their money in order to make greater gains. With investments, higher risk yields higher reward. There is a great deal of strategy that goes into what determines a person's financial risk tolerance. Similarly, there should be thoughtful guides for decision-making when we talk about a person's health risk tolerance. Here, there are two kinds of risk to consider. The risk of missing a true illness and allowing it to worsen, and the risk of identifying a benign abnormality and treating it unnecessarily. Each person must first understand these two potential outcomes, then find the best information available to determine what those risks are in their particular situation so they can make the choices that best fit them. Unfortunately, we rarely have simple numbers that inform us about our risks for potential outcomes. It can be very frustrating to go about the process of trying to make informed choices. I will give you an example I experienced recently that demonstrates this. Even for a person like myself with a clear understanding of how to advocate for my goals and evaluate the empirical evidence, it can be challenging to communicate with healthcare professionals and get the right information to make the decision that best fits me. First, I want to talk about my health goals and values. I am concerned about both the risk of missing legitimate illness and treating unnecessarily. I am also very aware that all treatments carry their own risks. I always want to carefully weigh the evidence for benefits of treatment against any potential risks or costs. Because of the type of insurance I have, it can get expensive to see doctors and discuss options or receive treatment. I also have a great deal of health-related anxiety, and I do not enjoy going to the doctor. For these reasons, I do lean more heavily in the direction of wanting to avoid treating anything unnecessarily, but I still consider myself very conscientious when it comes to health and am eager to partake in any treatments that are well-backed by evidence and likely to benefit me. During a recent wellness checkup, my doctor did routine blood work and found that my vitamin D level was low, 
and she prescribed me an extremely high dose to bring my levels back up. They call this a bolus dose, and it was 50,000 international units, or IUs, once each week for two weeks. After this, I was to supplement daily for a few months and then test again. I had some knowledge about vitamin D because it is talked about a lot in medicine. I knew low vitamin D is associated with a variety of poor health outcomes, but I also knew there is poor evidence that supplementing is beneficial. I had several problems with her recommendation and needed more information before I could decide whether I would follow it. The first issue I had came down to a matter of correlation versus causation. Just because low vitamin D is a biomarker associated with poor health outcomes does not mean it is causing those poor health outcomes. Knowing that two things are related does not tell us if they are causally related. That was the first issue I had with her recommending that I supplement. The second problem was that even if we did know that low vitamin D played a causal role in poor health, that does not mean we know that supplementing it will resolve the problem, nor does it tell us anything about whether a high bolus dose is necessary. It is possible to have vitamin D toxicity, so that high of a dose alarmed me. I wanted to see evidence of benefit, and most studies that I knew of examining vitamin D supplementation did not find a significant benefit, nor had they tested such a high bolus dose. A third problem I had with the recommendation was whether the cutoff used to determine that my level was low corresponded to the low levels that have been found in research to be associated with poor health outcomes. I noticed that my vitamin D level on my lab test was not far below the normal cutoff and was in a group labeled low risk of deficiency. So why was I being prescribed this ridiculously high bolus dose to resolve a low risk of deficiency? It didn't make sense to me. My own research into the medical literature yielded nothing compelling and I was leaning toward declining the treatment. I asked my father-in-law, who is a retired physician, to research it as well. He too could not find any good evidence for supplementing, particularly with a high bolus dose. Next, I left a question for my doctor with the nurse to try and get more information. Since I am not a medical doctor, I wanted to give my prescribing physician an opportunity to lead me to any research she thought was of high quality and demonstrated the benefits of supplementation. I asked her to provide me with references to peer-reviewed research articles that I could review for myself. When the nurse returned my call, she relayed a message from my doctor that said, quote, there aren't any lay books on the subject, quote, as if that was remotely what I had asked her for. There's a huge difference between a popular book and a peer-reviewed journal article. She then proceeded to direct me to the website for a medical governing body for her specialty, which recommends vitamin D supplementation for low levels. However, this website also failed to provide me with any peer-reviewed research backing up their recommendation. 
The recommendation appeared to be based on a line of thinking that was not even supported by studies, which is that supplementation would increase bone density and prevent future bone fractures. In fact, several large studies had found that people who supplement with vitamin D are more likely to experience a bone fracture potentially because of the cognitive effects of the supplement. Apparently, people's reaction times can be slowed by vitamin D supplements, causing them to not respond as quickly when they fall down. I therefore declined the treatment and was very disappointed by the lack of clear communication regarding why this treatment recommendation was being made to me. I was frustrated by how little they cared to understand my concerns. I later came to find out that studies have found that people with my level of vitamin D are not at greater risk for poor health outcomes. This further confirmed to me that I should not have had a supplement prescribed, nor should I have been labeled as deficient. Yet, the nurses and doctor all spoke to me as if I was being a nuisance or was uninformed. I could not find a way to align my values and goals with the evidence without also upsetting my doctor. Unfortunately, I find this is often the case. For this reason, I will have a whole episode on doctor-patient communication in the future. Why would my doctor prescribe me a treatment that is not well-backed by science? Isn't medicine supposed to be evidence-based? This recommendation comes out of years of preventive medicine, which is an approach to medicine that aims to prevent health problems early on or before they even occur, which is a great goal and is ideal if done correctly. But efforts at prevention can often get off track when carried out in real life because they aren't executed with enough planning or careful consideration of the evidence. A good example of how preventive medicine can go off the rails comes from the 1990s when doctors started widely prescribing postmenopausal women a type of hormone replacement therapy to curb chronic symptoms of menopause. This type of hormone replacement therapy later proved to increase women's risk for ovarian and uterine cancers. In the hopes of preventing a mild to moderate condition, doctors introduced a treatment that increased women's risk of fatal cancers. Once studies showed this link, doctors immediately reversed recommendations. Most women would easily have chosen hot flashes over cancer, but medical doctors had failed to carefully study the outcomes for long enough before widely adopting this recommendation. This is what can happen when recommendations are made without studying the issue for long enough or carefully considering the risks and benefits of all potential courses of action. How did the practice of medicine get here? Why are these efforts at prevention going wrong? Much of this change in the approach to medicine can be traced back to a seminal work published in 1993 by physician Jeffrey Rose called The Strategy for Preventive Medicine. After years of studying under hypertension researcher George Pickering, Rose had concluded that diseases emerge not as a function of differences in individuals, but as a function of differences in the environment and culture. Starting in the 1950s, the treatment of hypertension changed the way medicine was being practiced, which ultimately paved the way for Rose's book to be widely adopted as the Manual for Preventive Medicine. Hypertension is a uniquely different kind of disease, if you can even call it a disease. 
it is actually a risk factor for disease. Hypertension is the first condition where we begin to see doctors treating an abnormality that itself does not threaten our health, but which puts us at greater risk for other adverse events in the future. It is the first case where we begin to see treating the risk factors for disease instead of treating the disease itself. Up until this point, diseases had been viewed as occurring in a distinct population of people, one that is separate from the healthy population. Meaning, whenever there is a disease, scientists can identify a population of people qualitatively different from the healthy population. But with hypertension, there does not appear to be two distinct populations of people, with one distribution representing people with normal healthy blood pressure and another distribution representing unhealthy blood pressure. Instead, we have one large distribution containing the blood pressures of everyone, and doctors attempt to identify a cutoff point at which to label the tail end on the high side as treatable disease. This raises several important questions. Where is the cutoff and how is it chosen? And importantly, if we treat the risk factor, does it actually change health outcomes? To best answer this, scientists must examine the risks and benefits of treating and not treating at various levels of blood pressure to identify the point at which benefits of treating outweigh any risks of treating. Remember, no treatment is without its own risks. If the risk of not treating is very low, but the risks associated with treatment are moderate, there will likely be no benefit gained by treating. Treating might actually result in a net loss in health. For example, if your risk of having a heart attack if you don't take blood pressure medication is less than 1%, but the risk you run of getting depressed from taking the medication is 25%, you may not feel that the potential benefits of treatment outweigh the risks. You will need to weigh the reduction in risk of having a heart attack from taking the medication against the increased risk of developing depression from the medication. Doctors might recommend treating because the very small risk reduction is for a very severe outcome of having a heart attack, while the moderate increase in risk is for a more manageable condition, which is depression. But a person who has a family history of suicide preceded by depression and no family history of heart disease might feel a lot differently. No two people will view these health statistics in the same way. But each person deserves to know the numbers that guide recommendations when making their decision. Here's another example. Let's say scientists study people with blood pressures of 150 over 90 or higher and find that one in every 500 people who treats at this level of blood pressure will avoid a heart attack. Additionally, they learn that 3 in every 50 people who take the medication develop symptoms of major depression. The question each person with blood pressure of 150 over 90 or higher must then wrestle with is whether a 1 in 500 chance of avoiding a potentially fatal heart attack outweighs the 3 in 50 chance of developing depression. This is not an easy evaluation to make, but it is an important thing for each person to understand and consider. 
Such evaluations contain vital information about the risks and benefits of treating or not treating. This information can help you understand why certain treatment recommendations are being made and if it is the right choice for you. With hypertension, scientists had to first identify the point at which high blood pressure is associated with adverse events such as stroke or heart attack. Then, clinical trials needed to test whether treating at certain levels of blood pressure would lead to improvements in mortality and morbidity while carefully recording any adverse events associated with the treatments. They then used all that information to form guidelines for recommendations that reflect where they believe the benefits outweigh the risks. Though these guidelines continue to evolve, they do not always align neatly with the evidence. With hypertension and vitamin D supplementation, for example, the cutoffs for abnormal treatable levels continues to shift over time, diagnosing more and more people as sick and in need of treatment. There is great debate among medical experts and not much clarity on whether moving these cutoff points leads to gains and benefits in health or whether it is driving an epidemic of overdiagnosis and overtreatment. There are several important concepts for you to understand when discussing these kinds of decisions with your doctors. The first is absolute risk reduction. Absolute risk is the likelihood of an event occurring over a particular period of time. For example, if you have a 10% chance of having a heart attack in the next 20 years, that is your absolute risk of a heart attack over that period of time. To find absolute risk reduction, we calculate the rates of events that occur in a treatment group versus the rates of events in a control group over a certain period of time. In the example of high blood pressure medication to avoid heart attack, absolute risk reduction would be calculated by taking the percent of participants in the no medication group who had adverse cardiovascular events and then subtracting out the percent of people who had adverse events in the medication group. Let's say 10% of people in the no medication group had an adverse cardiovascular event, while only 3% of people in the medication group had an adverse event. The absolute risk reduction from taking medication would be 10% minus 3%. This means that taking this particular blood pressure medication is associated with a 7% absolute risk reduction for adverse cardiovascular events. In other words, people who take this medication reduce their absolute risk of having an adverse cardiovascular event by 7%. The second concept it is important to understand is relative risk reduction. Relative risk is another way of comparing rates of risk across two different groups of people. In our example, comparing the risk of heart attack in the medication group versus the non-medication group. To determine relative risk, we would take the rate of adverse events in the treatment group that received the medication and divide it by the rate of events in the control group that did not receive the medication. We would then subtract that number from 1 to calculate the relative risk reduction in heart attack associated with this medication. In our example, if 10% of people in the no medication control group had an adverse event, and 3% of the people in the medication group had one, the relative risk for the medication group would be 3% divided by 10%, which is 30%, 
meaning the risk of having an adverse event for the people who received medication was 30% or about one-third of the risk faced by the group who did not receive the medication. To calculate the relative risk reduction, meaning how much the risk of heart attack went down for people who received medication compared to people who did not, we subtract the decimal version of 30%, which is 0.3, from 1, which gives us 0.7. And this tells us that the medication reduced the risk of an adverse event by 70%. Let's pause here and examine how these two different ways to view risk reduction frame the issue. The first is absolute risk reduction, which tells us that taking the medication would lower a person's chances of having an adverse event from a 10% chance down to a 3% chance, which is a 7% reduction in absolute risk, ultimately resulting in the person facing a 3% chance of having an adverse event. The second is relative risk reduction, and this tells us that taking medication reduces the risk of a person having an adverse event by 70% compared to the control group, also ultimately resulting in the person facing a 3% chance of having an adverse event. I want to say that again because it's really confusing. Let's try another example to help clarify the point using these same numbers. Let's say that researchers study 600 people who have clinical depression to test a new medication. People are randomly assigned to either the medication group, also known as the treatment group, or the no medication group, which is called the control group. They are followed for two years, and the main outcome of interest is severity of depression. At the end of the study, 3% of the 300 people assigned to the treatment group who received the medication qualify as having severe depression, while 10% of the people in the control group who did not receive the medication qualify as having severe depression. These results mean that for people who are depressed, taking this medication reduces their absolute risk of developing severe depression by 7%. Without intervention, they can expect a 10% chance of going on to develop severe depression, and this likelihood drops down to 3% with medication. Another way to frame these same results is to say that for depressed people, the medication leads to a 70% reduction in the risk of developing severe depression. This reflects those exact same numbers, going from a 10% chance of developing severe depression down to a 3% chance of developing severe depression. But with relative risk, this means for people with depression, taking the medication reduces the risk of going on to develop severe depression by 70% relative to the risk of developing severe depression faced by people who have depression and do not take medication. So you see, this number is anchored and gauged by the rate of events in the control group, whereas absolute risk is based simply upon the rates of events themselves. For me personally, I am much more interested in absolute risk and absolute risk reduction. One very poignant and personal example I have is from my second pregnancy. If you've listened to episode one, you know that my first pregnancy ended six weeks early when I required an emergency C-section due to preeclampsia. 
With my second pregnancy, I was under close watch at a high-risk maternal fetal medicine practice and had been taking a very low dose of blood pressure medication to keep my blood pressure controlled. Though the medication was entirely effective and I did not have high blood pressure, my doctors recommended I have an induction at 39 weeks of pregnancy based on the fact I had a history of hypertension and was on this medication. I did not want to have an induction because my goal for the birth was to deliver naturally without medication. My understanding was that induction greatly increased my risk of needing another C-section so I was very resistant to the idea. I asked my doctor why they recommended this, and they said it was due to the fact that women who have high blood pressure experience a greater rate of stillbirth after 39 weeks as compared to women who do not have a history of hypertension. This is obviously not what any mother wants to hear, but I still needed more information to make the right decision for me. I asked the doctor what my absolute risk of stillbirth was if I chose not to induce, because relative risk couldn't tell me what I needed to know. The doctor might tell me there's a 75% reduction in the risk of stillbirth, which would certainly get my attention and sound really impressive. However, this could mean that an induction reduces my chances of having a stillbirth from 1 in 100 down to a 1 in 400 chance. Or it could mean reducing it from a 1 in a million chance down to a 1 in 4 million chance. Those are two very different scenarios, and I cannot know which I am dealing with simply by knowing the relative risk reduction. Both of these scenarios would calculate to a 75% reduction in risk. But if I look at the absolute risk, that's where we see another important part of the story. If it means my chances of having a stillbirth with no induction is 1% or 1 in 100 and goes down to a quarter of a percent or 1 in 400 with induction, this is a 0.75 absolute risk reduction or a 3 quarter of a percent absolute risk reduction. If, on the other hand, it means my chance of a stillbirth without induction is 1 in a million and goes down to 1 in 4 million, that is a 0.000075% absolute risk reduction. Both of these sound quite different from a 75% relative risk reduction. Keep in mind, these numbers are just examples. When I asked my doctor my absolute risk of having a stillbirth with and without induction, he said the likelihood was much less than one-tenth of one percent in either scenario. I was confused. I asked him why would he make such a recommendation for induction if my chances of stillbirth were so remote either way, but my chances of needing another C-section went up about 50% based on what I had read, and he knew that would violate my preferred birth plan. My doctor told me his recommendation was based on the fact that we were talking about the possibility of stillbirth. Due to the severity of that outcome, from their view, a stillbirth, even if a very remote risk, was to be avoided at all costs. I can understand this reasoning. As a mother, it was hard for me to consider my options without being entirely swept up in the fear that comes along with even the smallest chance of a stillbirth. Yet, I couldn't reconcile being induced 
and taking on all the risks that presented in order to reduce my chances of stillbirth from being far less than one-tenth of one percent down to being far, far less than one-tenth of one percent. It didn't make sense to me, so I declined induction. My doctors were not very pleased, and I had to carry this huge, stressful choice around with me until my baby was born, full well knowing that should anything happen to her, I would never have been able to live with myself for not having done everything possible to avoid that outcome. Praise the Lord, my daughter was born through a natural unmedicated birth at 40 weeks and three days. I believe my doctors had made the right recommendation about induction from their point of view based on their medical expertise. What they failed to take carefully into account, however, nor did they seem to even anticipate, was how I might feel and what my priorities might be. I had to advocate for myself clearly and ask pointed questions. Doing so empowered me to make the choice that was best for me. Experiences like these are why I am so passionate about helping other people learn to understand health and make informed choices. It was terrifying for me to take that risk, but I was rewarded with the birth experience I desired and a memory I will cherish for a lifetime of giving birth to my daughter naturally. The next concept I want you to understand is number needed to treat. The number needed to treat is the number of people who would need to receive treatment in order to avoid one bad event. It is the inverse of absolute risk reduction and is calculated by taking one and dividing it by the absolute risk reduction. Let's say 1,200 people with high blood pressure are randomly assigned to treatment and control groups. Over a three-year study, three of the 600 people in the treatment group who received the medication had heart attacks. Six out of the 600 people in the control group who did not receive medication had heart attacks. Based on these numbers, the relative risk reduction for heart attack associated with taking this medication is 50%. The absolute risk reduction is 0.5% or one half of 1%. The number of people who would have to take this medication for three years in order for one person to avoid having a heart attack would be 200. In other words, for every 200 people who have high blood pressure and are treated with this medication, one heart attack will be avoided over a three-year period. You might have noticed that this means 199 of those 200 people will be on medication but will not experience a benefit of avoiding an adverse event. This brings me to the last concept I want to cover on this episode, which is overdiagnosis. Technically, those 199 people were overdiagnosed and overtreated. Though their blood pressure was labeled as high, they were unlikely to go on to experience a heart attack over that three-year period to begin with as evidenced by the fact that only 1% of the people with high blood pressure in the control group had a heart attack. In other words, 99% of people with high blood pressure who were not treated were just fine. The problem is we can't tell at the outset who is the 1 in 200 who will experience a potentially fatal heart attack if they do not take the medication. This example is a good one because it is fairly similar to many that exist in real life. 
The numbers I am using are fictional examples, but do a good job of showing how complex and tricky these decisions can be. If my blood pressure is high and I am considering taking this medication, I want to know all the ways to look at it. I want to know that my risk of heart attack over the next three years would be reduced by 50% compared to people with high blood pressure like myself who do not take the medication. I also want to know that my absolute risk of having a heart attack over the next three years would be reduced by 0.5% if I take the medication. And I would want to know that 200 people need to take this medication in order for one person to avoid a heart attack. Do I care more about the possibility of being the one in 200 who can avoid the heart attack? or about the possibility that I could be one of the 199 who are treating unnecessarily. This brings us full circle to the tension created when we aim to avoid missing any true health problems and also avoid treating anything that is not a true health problem. Missing a real health concern and failing to treat it is underdiagnosis and undertreatment. Treating an abnormality that would not have gone on to be a real health problem is overdiagnosis and overtreatment. The question is how to best avoid both underdiagnosis and overdiagnosis. There are no simple black and white answers for how to best go about this. Furthermore, it is unlikely that one single approach would be most fitting for all people. The only reasonable choice is to use the kinds of information I have discussed here on this episode and compare that information to our personal goals and values to help guide us to the best possible decisions for us. Think back to that thought experiment about a car's check engine light. Remember how I noted that because the check engine light has become linked to increasingly sensitive technology, there are going to inevitably be more false alarms? The same is true for medical technology and overdiagnosing. With increasing ability to conduct precise medical imaging, such as CAT scans and MRIs, smaller and smaller abnormalities are being detected. Many of these abnormalities would not have gone on to cause health problems in the future, but we do not currently have a good way to distinguish the threatening from benign ones without invasive techniques like biopsy or surgery. The most cautious thing to do is to treat any abnormality in case it turns out to be aggressive or malignant. For this reason, I plan to do an entire episode on cancer diagnosis and treatment decisions, including screening decisions. We are increasingly pushing screening, but does screening really lead to decreased morbidity and mortality? Sometimes yes, but sometimes no. Does increased screening lead to more overdiagnosis? Always yes. This is why we must have a careful discussion of approaches to diagnosing and treating cancer specifically, where screening has become a large part of the healthcare landscape. I have unpacked a lot about understanding risk and have set the stage for how we, as patients, make decisions about treatments. There's a lot more to this topic that I still wish to cover. I want to dive deeper into shared decision-making and what it looks like to actually work in tandem with our doctors to make medical choices using these kinds of information. 
Medicine is moving past the old paternalistic approach to care and starting to embrace patients and caregivers as active participants in decisions. But change is slow, and far too many doctors and healthcare systems still make being an active participant in our own care a real struggle. I also want to spend more time talking about how to understand risk and evidence to make these informed health choices. This skill is a tricky one to get down, but is worth revisiting to solidify it because it is a key feature of medical and scientific literacy. I hope that today's episode gets you thinking more deeply about how to make all of your health choices in a more informed and evidence-based way. This approach to decision-making, where you carefully weigh the risks and benefits associated with different courses of action, goes far beyond making choices about medical treatments. The same reasoning can be applied to whether you should drink more water or exercise more. I will use this approach regularly on future episodes when discussing evidence for certain health behaviors or interventions. I do not believe we need strong evidence for everything we do. It can be enough to simply enjoy a particular thing. But when you are considering where to focus your time, money, and energy in order to promote your health, these choices need to be made with more wisdom and take into account the evidence. Hopefully, what you learn on this episode and on this podcast in general better equips you to do just that. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you will join me next week where I'm going to talk about body weight and health. It's a super touchy but very important topic. Many people associate larger bodies with poorer health outcomes, but the relationship between body size and health is much more complex than that. We will talk about BMI, diet culture, internalized weight stigma, and research on nutrition, exercise, and weight loss. It's going to be a doozy. That's it for today's episode. Have a hella great day, and please remember to be kind.